Good morning all. As you know, I'm always happy to be with you and I'm blessed in my times here in Woodisburn. I'm particularly happy to be preaching this weekend. I'll tell you why. Because yesterday was the 56th anniversary of my ordination and induction as the pastor of Govan Baptist Church. 56 years ago. So I give God all the glory for enabling me throughout all these years to continue using the gifts he's given me up to the present moment. I appreciate very much your prayers for me. For me. I need them. This is my favourite church, as you know. And uh, next, next Sunday, I believe I'm supposed to be in Springburn Baptist Church. I haven't had confirmation. But last time I was there, almost a year ago, I had an exceptionally fine Sunday with them. I'd preached there many times, but that last visit there was just both morning and evening. It was quite, quite special, with the Lord's presence and His Holy Spirit at work. We're going to look this morning at a somewhat difficult passage. It helps us to cope with what we might call unanswered prayer. It helps us to make right choices when we're faced with situations in life which are basically difficult and unpleasant and things we would never choose for ourselves. We all have to come against these situations from time to time, be it our health, our finances, our family situation, or our job, or whatever else. And this should help us to react in the best possible way as we come to this passage. I'm going to do something a little unusual this morning. Some of the old preachers of oh, way back over 100 years ago, they took a little longer than some of the modern preachers do to preach. Tell you why. Because they didn't just read the passage of scripture and then go through it as I would do, expounding it to you and so on. They, first of all, as they read the passage of scripture, they made brief comments on many of the verses as they read through. I'm going to do a little bit of that here because it helps us to understand some of the things here that are a bit unusual. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we come to you because you love us deeply and passionately and consistently and you want to encourage us, you want to enrich us, you want to add something to our lives even this morning. And so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that he may help me to speak wisely and helpfully and all of us to respond in positive ways that will enrich our lives. In Jesus' name. Alright, the passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, associated with the phrase, a thorn in the flesh. Paul has been speaking about the attitude of the Corinthian church to himself. Some of the Corinthian people really were not regarding him as a proper apostle. They were critical of his apostleship, and he would not rise to their bait as it were and seek to defend himself though he said he could and if he did he would be speaking the truth but what he tells them is something that really is very unusual full stop and we hope it will help us here this morning Paul says I must go on boasting although there is nothing to be gained I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. 
Now, most Christians are agreed that in this phrase, in this sentence, Paul is referring to himself. The person he calls a man in Christ is no other than the Apostle himself. In a sense, he's a little reluctant to get too close to this situation, and he's trying to distance himself from it in a way. It's a strange way of doing it, but that's what he does. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, mathematically speaking, if there is a third heaven, it follows there must be a first and a second. Uh, some would say that's not that's meant here, but I believe there are three heavens. You don't have to agree with me, thank you, thankful, thankfully. Um, the first heaven, I believe, along with many other Christians, is what we can see when we look upwards. Hmm? Yes? From here up to the sky that we see, I think that's the first heaven. The third heaven is what we normally call heaven, where God is, where the Lord Jesus in his glorified body is, is there now, praying for us. So what's that leave? The middle heaven, the, third, the second heaven. The second heaven, I believe, is a space between the first and the third, and that is where all the supernatural stuff that goes on between Satan and his hosts and the servants of God, the angels and so on, that is where that takes place. Agree with me or disagree as you will. Moving on. Uh, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know God knows. Now what on earth is he talking about? Well, he is describing what some Christians today would call an out-of-body experience. And a rather small number of Christians have had this similar experience of being literally caught up into the presence of God and having a very, very intimate session with God and coming back to earth. Whether their body was involved in that or not is debatable. So that's why he says whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. A paradise is an old word from another language which really means a garden or a park. It's used to describe the Garden of Eden. We think of it as we remember the dying thief on the cross, who in the last moments of his life reached out to the Lord Jesus and believed and was saved. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's best understood as simply another name for heaven. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. So Paul is saying to these people, what I experienced in that heavenly experience, I'm not free to speak about. It is just too special, too rare, too much to do with God. Things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but again he's distancing himself, but I will not boast about myself. He could have stated his own experience of God's mercy and blessing because already he had been uniquely used by God as an apostle. He had been used in signs and wonders and miracles. He had been used in a variety of ways. He had an exceptional anointing of the Spirit upon him. But he said, I'm not drawing your attention to that. I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. This is when we kind of get a bit of a jolt, 
at least I do, to my sister. What? Boast about our weaknesses? Well, let's read on. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Then he adds, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We don't find this kind of language very much in Scripture, but it's here. You see, it's clear from the Word of God that the sins that God most abhors and detests are pride and arrogance. And therefore, he encourages us to seek the opposite of that, which is humility. Peter writes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. Don't try and exalt yourself. That's quite the wrong approach. Let God do it. Our job is to be humble, not proud, not exalted. So Paul says, it was so important to God that he, Paul, should be kept humble after this amazing, unique experience he had had that there was given to him something which he calls a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now people have speculated as to what the thorn in the flesh was, but it's better that we don't know. Why? Because then this kind of thing covers all possible experiences of that sort. There was given to me a thorn in my flesh. And again, some people, have, some Christians have argued that, well, the New Testament uses the word flesh to refer to our fallen sinful nature, but it doesn't to me make sense to apply it in that direction. It seems to me to make sense in the more, most ordinary sense of our flesh is our body. Our human body is flesh and bones, etc. And this is something that affects us in our body. A thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Strange. Very strange. How can Satan be involved in this? What liberty does Satan have to attack us, to damage us. He does have liberty, but his liberty is controlled by God, controlled by the Lord. So even though it was the Lord's arrangement, in a sense Satan was used to do it. Hmm. Perhaps these thoughts are new to you. Three times, says Paul, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. He reacted as you and I would react. I don't like this, Lord. This is painful. It's, it's, it's upsetting me. It's difficult to live with. Take it away, please. That's a normal human reaction. And the Apostle Paul, though he was so spiritual, he did just that. He prayed that way. Three times. Not a kind of light-hearted prayer, but pleading with the Lord to take it away. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, some people talk about unanswered prayer, and others say there is no such a thing as unanswered prayer. What do they mean? Well, they mean there are three possible answers, and the one is yes, you can have what you're asking for, and the other is the opposite, no, you're not getting it, and that's the answer Paul got here. 
And the third is wait. You may get it later on, but not now. So, three times Paul pleaded with the Lord, and three times the Lord refused to do it. But the Lord immediately indicated his enabling provision. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now can you see how this affects us? You see, when we experience these unpleasant experiences in life, whatever nature they may be, our natural instinct is to long for the removal. This is not blessing me. I don't like it. I don't want it. Lord, please take it away. That's a natural response. But if it's not the response God wants from us, then it's not going to do us any good. One ship sails east and one sails west. But the self-same gale that blows, it's the set of the sails and not the gales that determines the way she goes. Mm-hmm. What is that saying? It's saying something very important spiritually. It's saying that it's not what happens to us that can damage us. It's how we react to what happens to us that can damage us. We can react in two, one of two opposite ways. The natural reaction is resentment and bitterness and hatred. I don't like this. I'm really angry about it. That's a natural reaction. But it doesn't achieve anything. Well, it does. It adds to the damage. But if we react positively and believe and dare to believe that God has a purpose in what is allowed to happen to us. He's a sovereign God. He loves us. He's got a purpose in what he allows to happen to us. Then out of what seems, humanly speaking, nasty and unproductive and unhelpful, suddenly becomes a doorway into blessing. So, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, was the Lord's answer. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, one or two headings to look at it from a different angle. The situation that required this experience of the thorn in the flesh was a situation we have noted this out-of-body experience of being caught up to heaven into a very, very intimate experience of God. And Paul speaks about his ongoing experience of visions and revelations. Visions are obviously something that is visible, something that we see, perhaps in a dream, perhaps in the daytime, when we're wide awake. But you see, visions are part of God's experience for us. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and quoted from the prophecy of Joel more than 400 years earlier, he spoke about the outpouring of the Spirit and what would happen when the Spirit was outpoured on the church. Young men will see visions. That's not limited to young men, but young men do see visions. So should we not expect, if God desires to do it, to give us a vision 
something supernatural through which God communicates with us something that involves seeing but perhaps hearing as well after all, just briefly looking at the beginning of Acts to see what was happening in the early church we discover for example that at the time of the Apostle Paul's conversion we did about visions because God had arranged that when Saul of Tarsus was confronted by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and virtually surrendered his life to Jesus at that point he was told by the Lord go into Damascus and it will be told you what to do and the Lord has been preparing a man in Damascus to minister to this new convert highly special new convert the man in Damascus is called Ananias now not the one we saw last Sunday another one and we're told that the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to this house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for his praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. You see how much practical information was communicated to this man, Ananias, in a vision from the Lord to prepare him to go and minister to this new convert. And Ananias is told by the Lord, Paul has seen a vision of you, a man named Ananias, coming and placing his hands upon him. So that's part of God's communication system. Visions. Visions. Now we could look much further, but we'll not, we'll not take time. Then there are revelations. Well, revelation, to, to reveal something simply means to show it. It was concealed before, now it's revealed. Now we can see, we can hear, we know what's going on. And revelation is something that is ongoing for the Christian and normal for the Christian. Uh, Vic was speaking about reading the Bible. All the good stuff that God has written into his word for us. And as Paul prayed for the Christians in Ephesus, for example, he tells them he's praying for them and tells them what he's praying. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. God's purpose in revealing more of himself and his grace and his power and his mercy and his blessing to us, God's purpose is so that we get to know him better. Now some Christians over the years have made the mistake of being fascinated by facts and I've spent a lot of time studying the Bible and collecting lots of information lots of facts but in some cases sadly they haven't got to know God much better that's not God's intention God doesn't give us facts so that we know more than the guy next door God gives us facts so that we can learn and benefit from them and get to know him better in the process worth bearing in mind when we think about visions and revelations then after the situation required it we can think about the suffering involved in it Paul tells these Corinthians that there was given me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan to torment me there was given me a thorn in the flesh it was a gift it was a gift 
It wasn't a punishment. It wasn't something negative. Though it might seem to be, it was a gift. Of course, God has given us gifts, otherwise we wouldn't be here. He's given us the gift of new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. We're people who have received the most amazing gifts from God. And God wants to go on giving us gifts to enrich us, not to rob us. Always to enrich us. It was a gift. And it was a godsend. It was from God. Now last week, Vic was speaking to the children about the storm in the lake. A storm that blew up when the Lord Jesus was sleeping peacefully in the stern of the boat and the disciples panicked badly because they thought the boat would overturn and they'd all be drowned. Now when they wakened the Lord Jesus, what did he do? Did he simply command the waves to subside and the wind to drop? No, that's not the language of scripture. He rebuked the wind and the waves. Would you go down to the shore and think of rebuking the wind and the waves? I wouldn't. But Jesus did. Why? Because almost certainly there was demonic work behind that storm, as there can be in today's storms. There can be. After all, here is the Messiah asleep in the middle of a lake in a boat. And Satan may very well have stirred up that storm to seek to drown the Messiah before he ever went to the cross. Oh yes, this kind of thing, these kind of things happen. It was, however, this was a godsend. This was a godsend. And God sends some strange things to us to enable us to live triumphantly. The situation that required it, visions, revelations, the suffering involved in it, a gift from God, a godsend. And then we read about the strength resulting from it. You see, the outcome was so different from what it might have been. I mean, the Apostle Paul was very spiritual, but even the most spiritual of people on the earth <laughs> were still human. We're still human and we can kind of have a lapse and, and react in a very unspiritual way occasionally. Don't do it too often. But Paul reacted in a wonderful, wonderful spiritual way. The Lord spoke clearly to him a simple statement. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, here's a promise from the Saviour. And when the Lord Jesus Christ sees fit to give us what in this case was a very personal promise, it's not to be ignored. It's not to be regarded lightly. It's obviously intended to play an important part in our life. As he writes the Gospel, John the Apostle tells us that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ and adds in that first chapter of John, all of us have received out of his fullness one blessing on another. Literally, grace upon grace upon grace. And a verse that I delight to ponder again and again is Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Familiar words to every gospel preacher. Therefore, says Paul to the Christians in Rome, since we have been justified through faith, 
made righteous, declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. When we come to Jesus and surrender our lives to him, that he may become our Saviour and Lord, and don't try and separate these two, they belong together, we are ushered into a new realm in which we have not lived before. Now the grace of God is operating all over the world and he's gracious to unbelievers as well as to believers. But here for the Christian we're told that when we're born again into God's family we find ourselves in a rarefied spiritual atmosphere and it's called the realm of grace. We stand in the realm of grace. I may have said to you before that I find sometimes rather down-to-earth illustrations help me to remember spiritual truths. I love water. Oh, how do I love water? Um, and I always think I'm standing under the most ideal shower in the world when I'm in this realm of grace. I mean, just to be having grace poured upon me right now as I'm preaching, grace poured upon me, thank you, Lord. Grace poured upon you. We're living in the realm of grace. God keeps giving us gifts. He keeps showing us kindness. That's grace. And we can count on that to the end of the journey. Yes, that's good news. My grace is sufficient for you. And to the young pastor Timothy in Ephesus, he was a kind of shy, nervous young man, I think. And the Apostle Paul wrote to him and says, My son, be, be strong. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Breathe it in. Absorb it. Believe you're there in that realm of grace and just claim more of it day by day as your provision for triumphant living. It's a very good recipe. Because along with grace goes power. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The power of God is promised to us. Our Lord Jesus himself, you remember before Pentecost, said to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's one of the great blessings of the Christian life. To receive the greatest power in the world into your life and mine. How often have you felt powerless? Powerless in some situation that you couldn't handle. You didn't know how to cope with. Powerless. And here we are promised an adequate supply of power every hour of every day. My power is made perfect in weakness. What qualifies us to receive the maximum blessing of God's power? What qualifies us? Well, the answer is here. It's our weakness. You see, human beings on the whole are self-sufficient and like to believe that they can run the show themselves and cope with life themselves, no matter what it throws at us. Yes, the way of the world is the way of, I will manage on my own, thank you very much. And that's one reason why so many folks shut God out of their lives. Because they very wrongly and very foolishly believe that no matter what situation may arise, I can handle it. I have learned how to cope with difficulties. Don't bother me with no, talking about God. Ah, oh, no, 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 no. At the end of the day, we can't forgive our own sins for a start. 
We may be able to cope with many things on our own. But it's our confessed weakness that opens the door for Christ's power to rest upon us. Another phrase of power resting, the little phrase resting upon us, upon me, it actually uh, literally means a tent being pitched over me. Whose tent is it? It's Jesus' tent. Now the Bible calls our bodies a tent, which we'll dismantle one day and leave behind. But here's a picture of when I become a Christian, the Lord Jesus comes into my life, I bring his tent with him. Oh, I like that. Um, my tent's a bit flimsy, his isn't. And he moves in, and the tent of Jesus is, is actually over me. I'm in the most secure watertight tent in the world. Tent of Jesus. That's the language used here. That Christ's power may rest on me. What a blessed situation to be in. But you see, most of us, I can only speak for myself, I know, but um, many Christians don't seem to get to the place where they could honestly say what Paul says in this letter. Could you honestly say, I will not boast about myself? So even, even Christians who have known the Lord for years and, uh, and you know, we're, we've, we've learned a lot and we're a bit more humble than we were when we first became Christians. And now and again, we, we still are a little bit foolish and reckless and the most about certain achievements we've made and so on and so forth. And Paul says, I'm finished with boasting except in my weakness. Hmm. Oh dear, can I match that? I don't think so. So he says, I... Glory in my weaknesses. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that means that really out of love for us, sometimes, perhaps not too frequently, sometimes in order to bless us with the large experience of his power, his blessing, his help that he wants to give us, to bless us at that level, sometimes God has to take steps, and some of them are drastic steps, to weaken us. To weaken us. Vic was speaking about old age having a blessing of gaining more knowledge and so on and so forth. Well, I guess it's true. But old age is other compensation. Well, <laughs> compensation is not the right word. Old age is other consequences as well. And if they even, I mean, this, this may sound crazy to you, but even a year ago, I would have found it more difficult to relate to this than I find this morning. Why? Because my body is not as so strong as it was a year ago. I know a little more of the meaning of the word weakness. I don't like it, but I thank God for it. And as long as I'm prepared to glory in my weakness and not moan about it and not complain about it and not say this is not good enough, Lord, my weakness qualifies me for more of his strength. You see, the weaker we feel, the more we depend on him. And there are Christians who are painfully arrogant sometimes. And they don't seem to have any awareness that they need the power of God in order to live the way he wants. And many of them don't live the way he wants because of their arrogance. Thank God that in his wisdom and love 
He trusts us with weaknesses. So Paul's proclamation is this. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I don't complain about them. I delight in them. Oh, God, help me to do that. In insults, help me to take them. In hardships, help me to endure them without complaint. In persecution, it's not to hit back and criticize. In difficulties, yes, yes, yes. Why? For when I'm weak, then am I strong. God is changing our lives. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit of God. That's written in the Scripture. It's a wonderful promise. Our Heavenly Father, by His Holy Spirit, is working on you and on me every single day. Changing us. Sometimes just a little bit. Sometimes a bit more. Because He wants us ultimately to be like Jesus. So, what are we learning? What are we learning? Notice Paul's concern for the glory of Christ. He says, before repeating his declaration that delight in weaknesses, he says, it's for Christ's power to rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. If Jesus can be more glorified, more honoured, more visible to other people, through my weakness. Oh Lord, help me. Help me to boast about my weaknesses. His confession of strength is very clear and very plain. When I am weak, then I am strong. So let's not be too surprised if in coming days, somewhere along the line, we experience perhaps some things we haven't particularly had to cope with before, like weaknesses, like insults, like hardships, like persecutions, like difficulties. Don't resent them. Because the opposite of welcoming these things and boasting about them and seeing the potential good in them, the opposite of that, opposite of that, is to go into resentment which very often leads to bitterness and it's so destructive yes I speak out of experience there was a period in my life many years ago when I was somewhat backslidden and I became resentful and it was pure poison pure poison in my life in my marriage don't go down that road. It's far too painful. It is totally destructive. When I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we know from our experience of your great salvation that out of your love for us, out of your ambition to make us like Jesus, we can safely trust you to overrule in our lives 
as to what measure of suffering we may have to experience of whatever kind that suffering may be help us to believe that great promise in your word that in all things you are at work for the good the good of those who love you who are called according to your purpose Father we are so grateful that you are such a good and wise and loving Father help us to yield ourselves afresh to you in this very moment in Jesus' name.